0: Good morning everyone, I am Pastor David, I have a question for you this morning, how many of you would you say that you are a happy person, may have a show of hands. all right, you know, this is the last long weekend in the summer, you are here, not in a beach someplace else. But yet, you are happy. And that's an incredible, incredible thing. Now, let me ask another question here that, shout it out, because I'm looking for answers. When you raised your hand saying that you are a happy person, why did he say that? Anybody? Perspective? Perspective. Jesus. What is that? Crisis in, life. Crisis in your life. Family. Your family. Okay? Anything else? No. Health? Okay. Peace? Okay. Happy wife. Happy wife. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping someone will say that. You know, while preparing to preach the sermon this morning, I took two quizzes to determine if I am a happy person or not. And I received failing scores on both of them. I scored 54% on the first one, which is an F, and a miserable 12% on the second. So, you might be wondering if I'm really qualified to preach a sermon on happy people. But perhaps you are curious to know why my scores were so low. Here were the types of questions that were on the two quizzes. Do you eat well? and exercise regularly. <laughs> as you know, as I have confessed, I don't eat well unless my wife, Gem, hides unhealthy food from me. <laughs> now, I do have a treadmill on the basement, but it hasn't been turned on for a while. And in fact, I don't even know if it works. <laughs> Here's a, another, another question. Are you boring or funny? Now you can see how quickly things get down, went downhill from there for me. Here's another one. On a good day, would you rather sit and read a book or go outside and have some fun? And those of you who know me know what my answer to that one is. On a good day, if you sat and read a book you have a boring life. Here's the clincher. Do you live in a place where the outside temperature is around 57 degrees? This is true. I mean, it's there. Apparently, it has been scientifically proven that 57 degrees is the most optimal temperature for happiness that would make all of us who who live in michigan unhappy people wouldn't it <laughs> therefore i could not answer yes say yes to the last question do you surround yourself with happy people <laughs> this morning though I am happy to say that God and His Word define happiness and happy people differently than the world does. That's what the psalm is all about. Psalm 1 is all about. It answers the question, who are the happy people? So if you haven't already opened your Bibles, I invite you to open to Psalm 1, which is found on page 568 in the Bible the church provides. Psalm 1, page 568. The psalm begins this way in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, no sits in the seat of Scophus, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, law he meditates day and night. Now there are two different Hebrew words that have been translated as blessed in our English Bibles. The two words are Baruch and Ashra. They actually capture two different aspects of blessing. The word Baruch is a benediction. That is, it is a request or a prayer or a wish that God would bless an individual. On the other hand, The word "ashra," which is a word that is used here in Psalm 1, is a beatitude. That is, it is a statement or a declaration that someone is fortunate because of something they possess or because of something they have done. You see the difference? One is a prayer; it is a benediction. You lay hands on somebody and pray for them that God would bless them, that they will have this particular blessing. Whereas Asherah is about a quality or a character that somebody possesses because of God's blessing on them. One commentary put it this way. The word Baruch invokes God's beneficent support of life. while well, Asherah pines to and commends the conduct and character that enjoyed. Those are two different things. Therefore, biblical scholars believe that happy is a better translation than blessed. And therefore it would read, Happy is the man, not blessed is the man, the way that normally we think of of a prayer or a benediction. Happy is the man. And the first two verses of Psalm 1 present happy people as those who get their counsel from God's word and not from wrong or even questionable resources. Let me repeat that. Happy people are those who get their counsel from God's word and not from wrong or even questionable resources. Notice that this happiness that the scripture defines is not dependent on feelings. Feelings go up and down, but the happiness described in Psalm 1, biblical happiness, does not oscillate. Notice also that this happiness does not depend on the conditions of our surroundings. Whether it is 57 degrees or below zero, this happiness remains. Whether we are in the midst of suffering or sorrow, this happiness remains. One commentary put it this way, neither negative feelings nor adverse conditions can take away this happiness. Perhaps one of the best examples actually comes from Acts chapter 5. The council of the high priest was very unhappy after the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples were preaching that Jesus had risen from the dead. So they arrested the apostles and put them in prison. But during the inquiry... They told them not to speak in the name of Christ and also not to perform miracles in the name of Christ. And to that the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And the council was enraged and wanted to kill the apostles. But one of the council members, Gamaliel, spoke up and said, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So the council listened to the advice of Gamaliel. But however, before letting the apostles go, they beat them up. This is not taking a very thin stick and be beating like this. It is you know, In those days, they beat people with a particular uh, leather thing which had a, a, a sharp edge on the, on the, on the, on the bottom, and he beat it and it really rips off your skin. That's how the beating was done in those days. So they were probably bleeding everywhere, and they were beaten up. And here's what we read in verse 41. Then the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's the kind of happiness that we are talking about. It does not depend on feelings. It does not depend on weather conditions. It does not depend on whether we are facing trials or tribulations, suffering or sorrow. It doesn't matter whether we are facing obstacles or opposition, whether we are persecuted or under pressure. It remains regardless of those conditions. And Psalm 1 talks about that kind of happiness. Enjoyed by that kind of happy people. Now, let me ask the question again Are you a happy person today based on the definition of Scripture? So, in that sense, I'm really happy that I scored. 54% and 12% on the worldly quizzes. So, the question before us is this How, because I have already said that happy, that happy people get their counsel from God's word and not from wrong or even questionable resources. That's the definition. Not anything else. So the question before us is this. How do we get our counsel from God's Word and not from wrong or even questionable resources? It's a two-part question. First one, how do we get counsel from God's Word? And the second question is, how do we avoid or even reject wrong and questionable resources? So let's look at the first one. How do we get counsel? From God's word. Again, let's go back to verses 1 and 2. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There are three words that describe how a happy person gets his or her counsel from God's word. And the words are delight, meditate, and then day and night. Now the first words, day and night, it is what is called a merism, which is, it mentions two extremes to include all that is in between. So let's take a minimalist approach and say, minimally, these words refer to a daily practice. Daytime is covered, nighttime is covered, it's a whole day, 24 hours is covered. So minimally, we have to say, this talks about, these words talk about a daily practice of some kind. But taken to the extreme, it can mean all the time, constantly, every waking minute, every waking hour, that we would be somehow meditating on the Word of God. That's the extreme. Now the extreme, of course, can be impractical for many. As a full-time pastor, perhaps, I could come to my office and that's that's all I do. It's workable. But those of you who are working in other places, and you have other jobs and things of that kind, that might be impractical. So let's take a minimalist approach today and say, what we are talking about is a daily practice of seeking counsel from God's Word. Now the second word is delight. Now it means desiring it, longing for it, finding pleasure in it. And the third word is meditate, it does mean reflecting or pondering something. But interestingly, it also means murmuring and muttering, in a good way. In other words, what happens to us, that, that's the word, it's, you know, when you say meditate, meditate on the word of God means you know, murmur and mutter about the word of God is what, what, what that is. In the days when the scripture was not widely available in printed form as we have today, people memorized scripture. So when they meditated, they murmured and muttered those scriptures in kind of, they said it aloud, but in low voices, you know, blessed is the man who walks in the council of the wicked, you know, things like that. They, they kind of muttered and murmured. That's what they did. And that's the idea that is captured here. You see, when you meditate, uh, meditate silently, only a brain is engaged. But when you murmur and mutter, your mouth speaks, your ear hears, and therefore and your mind thinks, and as a result, what you have done is you have engaged at least three of your senses in meditation. The more of your senses you engage, the better the depth of your meditation. And that's the point that is made here by the word meditate. And you and I can identify with this. You know, for example, let's say, you know, you're thinking about something and your window in in the home or office is open. And then all of a sudden you're thinking about something and somebody moves that way. And your eyes looks at that and you're distracted. You have lost your thought, right? Or your door is open, your office door is open, and somebody is talking, again you are thinking about something, you are working hard at something, and all of a sudden somebody talks in the hallway, two people are talking in the hallway, and you really listen to that, and you have been distracted. And your thought is gone. And so when when, when the Bible talks about meditation, this is what it talks about. Bring all of your senses into focus. And such a single-minded focus involving all of our senses will deepen the meditation such that it is a much better experience than anything else. The problem, however, though, is this. You know, when we talk about the word meditation these days, Christians kind of squirm. Because it kind of sounds like New Agey thing, you know. Yoga and Transcendental Meditation, you know, things of that kind. That's what people people think about. And therefore, Christians kind of squirm when they hear the word meditation. But there are huge differences between Biblical and New Age or Eastern religion meditations. For one, the New Age meditations are about emptying yourself. In other words, you t- sit in a particular posture and you know, it says a mantra or whatever and you kind of empty yourself, try to get all of your thoughts out of yourself self, and then you can get into some kind of a you know, different realm or something like that. That's not what Christian meditation is. Christian meditation is just the opposite. It is about filling our minds and all our senses with God's Word and be fully engaged in God's Word. That's the difference. So when all of these thoughts are put together from these three words delight and meditate and day and night, this is what this is the thought that comes out. We get a picture that happy people engage in daily practice of desiring God's word, longing for it, and finding pleasure in it. They engage as many of their senses as possible, the more the better, by murmuring and muttering, sort of preaching God's word to themselves. And such concentrated focus leads to deep reflections of God's word, which in turn leads to this particular happy life, which is also Psalm one says is a fruitful life. And that's what we read in verses three. In verse three. It says He, meaning the happy man or a happy person. It's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that He does, He prospers. A steady stream of God's Word flows in and through them and therefore they bear fruit in season. Second, they do not wither. For example, when tragedy strikes, they're not shaken. And then and it says, third, they prosper in all they do. Now, I also dug a little bit deeper in the original text of the Hebrew language, the word prosper. No doubt it can mean financial prosperity. But here... This particular Hebrew word means a lot more. For example, things like to advance, to make progress, to succeed, to bring something to a success of completion. You see, you see how things change? Because we, we are, when we hear the word prosper, we immediately focus on financial prosperity. But when we dig deeper, we find it is about advancing something. It is about making progress in something. It is about succeeding in something. Or it is, bring, it is bringing something to a successful completion. They are all prospering. In other words, these happy people follow through on whatever God's word says to them. No matter The consequence. They don't buckle under pressure or persecution, obstacles or opposition. Instead, they push through to the end and let God bring good out of every situation. You know, as I was writing these words, two examples came to my mind. The first one was about the early Christians who lived in the New Testament time. As we know, they were under Roman occupation, and the Roman law required everyone under Roman rule to bow down to the image of the emperor. But God's word forbade it. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, said the first of the Ten Commandments. So here you are. The law of the land said something which is in direct conflict with what the Word of God said. And happy people Fruit-bearing people, God's people, have got their counsel from God's word, and therefore they are willing to push through it, stand firm, not buckle under pressure, persecution, obstacles, and opposition, but to follow through and let God bring good out of that decision. you know what happened to the early christians many were arrested beaten up put in prison burned at the stake crucified thrown into lions den but the church history tells stories of them like this They faced deaths rejoicing. Do you have that kind of happiness? God did bring so many good things out of that, out of their sacrifice. Today we have a translation of the Bible in the English language because of their sacrifice. Today we have, we at least have a principle called in this country anyways, the freedom of religion because of their sacrifice. Today we have the separation of state and the church because of their sacrifice. And there are many more. Reformation came about because of their sacrifice. God did bring good Out of the life of happy people who got their counsel and stood firm in the midst of all kinds of obstacles and opposition, persecution and pressure. Fast forward some 2,000 years, it's in the news. Kim Davis, Rowan County Clerk in Kentucky, faces a similar dilemma. The law of the land says that licenses must be issued for gay marriages. But God's Word says otherwise. Today as we sit here, she is in prison. I don't know her. I don't know her background. We hear the news that she is in good spirits in all of that and she is reading the Bible in prison and all of those different things. So the question that I want to put before you is this. When the law of the land conflicts with the word of God, what would he do? God's people, happy people, who get their counsel from God's word, know what to do. And that's the biblical definition of happy people, fruit-bearing people. Are you a happy person today? The second question that I want to address is, how do you not get counsel from wrong or even questionable resources? How do you reject or even avoid wrong and even questionable resources and I think verse 1 provides the answer happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers Now, there are two schools of thought regarding the interpretation of this particular verse. The first school believes that the three negative statements are parallel to one another. This is referred to as Hebrew parallelism. Therefore, the words walk and stand and sit are synonymous and they express the same meaning. I, however, belong to the second school. That believes that the order of these statements indicate a gradual descent into evil. They don't mean the same. You go from the first statement to the second statement to the third statement, it is a gradual descent into evil. For example, a person walks means walks by or walks alongside. Then he stands, meaning he stops and takes a stand rather than standing still. And ultimately sits, meaning dwells or takes a permanent residence in the company of the wicked. Similarly, the words counsel, way, and seat draw attention to the realms of thinking, behaving, and belonging. Somebody thinks about it, but may, never behaves that way. One of the famous examples, by the way, is, a, is a, 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 a Catholic scholar, a wonderful man, and he had some evangelical flavors as well. He had, a, a homo, he had homosexual attraction. But he never acted on it. His name is Henry Nowen. And he never acted on it. And he passed away about, I don't know, five to ten years ago. So he was in the thinking realm, but he never behaved or he never belonged to the company of the wicked. And then the words wicked and sinners and scoffers draw attention to those who have been found guilty in the court of law. That's the wicked people. From there, to the behavior becoming habitual, and to ultimately being outright hostile to those who oppose them. You see the movement? They made a mistake. And from there, that particular sin becomes a habitual issue. And then from there, they have become advocates for that particular issue. In some cases, even outright hostile to the people who oppose them. One commentary put it this way. The three complete phrases show three degrees of departure from God. By portraying conformity at three different levels. Accepting its advice, being party to its ways, and adopting the most fatal of its attitudes. For the scoffers are the farthest from repentance, gradual descent into evil. So here's the thing, you know, how, how, how do you know, some cases, you know, to know the wrong thing, perhaps you could, you could take a resource and, and read it and compare it to the Bible and you could say, no, that's totally contradicting, contradicted to the Bible and therefore you could say that's a wrong source and you could throw it away. But how about the questionable? Ones. You know, I don't want to give an impression somehow, you know, life and life decisions and thoughts are always black and white. There are gray areas. And how do you determine that? One of the tools that this Psalm one provides is that make sure whether this source has potential to lead you away from God and into a sinful path, including those that gradually lead you there, sometimes without you even realizing it. And such resources need to be rejected, avoided, and you, don't, you and I don't seek counsel from those kinds of resources. You know why? Because in verses 4 through 6, this, because this is what happens. It's verses 4 through 6, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's what will happen. Whereas the happy person is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. The wicked person is like a chaff that the wind drives away. They will not stand in the judgment. They will not sit in the congregation of the sinners. Ultimately, they perish. Two weeks ago, when I stood here, I told you it was a sad day in the Evangelical Free Church of America because the number two person in the organization had confessed to adultery. This past Friday... I received the online version of the Christianity Today magazine. If you're receiving hard copies, you may not have seen this yet. In it, I read Ligonier Suspense, R.C. Sproul Jr. over Ashley Madison Visit. Reform leader admits accessing adultery website in a moment of weakness, pain, and from an unhealthy curiosity. By the way, this is a very famous organization led by his father, R.C. Sproul. This is his son. They have done so many good things over the years. And here's what the son, R.C. Sproul Jr. writes. My goal was not to gather research for critical commentary, but to fan the flames of my imagination. I was there long enough to leave an old email address. And within minutes I left never to return. I did not sign up for the service or interact with any clients. Until anything comes out to the contrary... Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. But here's the question that they have for us. Do you see his gradual descend into evil? He went there out of curiosity. Then he ended up leaving his email address there. And in the process, he had lied to the people who were close to him and trusted him. And the end result of all this is that he has been suspended by a reputable Christian organization that he worked for. Currently, he is not a happy man. Instead, he is in a state of public shame. Brothers and sisters at Middle of Free, Do you want to be happy people the way the Bible defines what a happy person is? What happiness is is about? Then get your counsel daily from God's word. And not from wrong or even questionable resources. Reject them, avoid them, run away from them, flee from them. Two weeks ago, I mentioned a book that asked preachers to summarize their sermons using four questions. So that we can retain it for a longer period of time. So here here they are. I just want to summarize and conclude my sermon. If somebody were to ask you, what is the subject of the sermon? It is not good enough to say the sermon was on Psalm 1. Rather, you should be able to state that the sermon was about happy people. The happiness that the Bible defines is different than the happiness the world defines. And the second question is, what is the response called for in the sermon? And the response that we called here is that get your counsel from God's word and not from wrong or even questionable resources. Reject them, avoid them, run away from them. And the listeners may turn around and ask, how do we do that? And I gave you two points there, answering two questions. By delighting in and meditating on God's Word daily. And then by rejecting or avoiding wrong and even questionable resources that gradually descend us into evil. And the listeners may ask, David, how long would it take? I wish I had easy answers. It really calls for daily practice that's lifelong. Daily practice that's lifelong. We as Christians are always under spiritual attack, and that calls for diligence. And that calls for meditation and receiving counsel from God's Word. May God enable us to do that. Always, until, and as long as we live and breathe on this earth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I I pray, Lord, I need you. And my brothers and sisters need you. And I pray that you will watch over us and that you would protect us. Father, give us this hunger, this desire, this longing, this yearning for your word. Help us to memorize them. Help us to fill our minds and our hearts, our eyes and our ears and our mouths and our noses with your word. So that they are there in our fingertips to live lives that are truly honoring and pleasing in your sight. Bringing honor and glory to your great name and living happily and bearing fruit. That's our desire and that's our prayer. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.